This Week at Hope Point. When individuals live only for themselves and not for the good of the larger group, self-destruction always occurs. And the only way that anybody will ever be inspired in a nation to live and regard others as more important than me is if you ultimately have God as your chief accountability partner. But if you do not believe that God is the one to whom you're ultimately accountable, you will only live for yourself and not for the good of others. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's Holy Word. One of the things that causes our staff to probably smile the most collectively is when we announce something uh, repeatedly, maybe six or seven times, and we'll do it with an e-blast, and we'll do it through um, the announcements that roll on the screen before the service, and then maybe a video announcement after the welcome, and then a shout out maybe from logo time, and we just cover it and cover it, and then all of a sudden the event comes up and somebody said, I didn't know we were having trunk or treat. Did y'all announce that? This is when you come to Revelation, you come to a major announcement that was so important that God included it in the scripture seven times, just to make sure that nobody missed it. It is the destruction of Babylon. We first heard that Babylon, this city that represents all worldliness and everything about fallen culture that is evil is represented in the word Babylon. We first saw that Babylon was going to be destroyed in Revelation 16. And you read that at the end of the chapter and you think you're done with the book. But then God spends two chapters announcing it seven more times in chapters 17 and 18 because it's the most important announcement in the world so you can be saved from that judgment. Then there came a severe earthquake. The great city split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. In ancient times, Babylon was just an arrogant, powerful, pagan, sensual, materialistic city that saw no need for God, blasphemed God, and so that's why it gets the title of representing all the cities of the world. It is, represents the spirit of rebellion. And the worldly spirit that exists in Babylon or all cities is composed of five uh, fatal beliefs. The spirit of the world believes we should satisfy our physical desires any way we want. Number two, the most important goal in life is to acquire material possessions. The spirit of the world also believes, number three, God is not worthy to be honored for the blessings we enjoy. Number four, the church's witness of truth should be silenced. And number five, it is permissible to oppress people for the sake of material gain. If you missed the past two Sundays, I'm going to provide a quick summary of a verse that I'm about to read that uh, could be a little confusing about three major players at the end of time. And the reason why they're important is the world is so desperate to silence the church. It partners with two other forces that are described in this passage. Revelation 17, we read it last week. Come, I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. 
I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and 10 horns. And the 10 horns are 10 kings who give their power and authority to the beast. So there are three characters that play a part in the world opposing Christ and his mission through the church. There's a woman that symbolizes what we just said, the spirit of the world, rebellious spirit, worships a sinful pleasure, and unites herself with anybody to experience more sinful pleasure. The beast is a demonic being called the Antichrist that promises to give increasingly, increasing power to a disobedient world. And then in that passage of Revelation 17, there are 10 kings that represent institutions, organizations, all the way from government to industry, who align themselves with this demonic force called the beast to oppress righteousness in a, a nation, in a culture. They really seek to uh, put down the witness of the church. There's always been a partnership between culture and evil, uh, but there will be an increasing partnership in the end of times, one that we've never seen, uh, unprecedented persecution of the church, unprecedented rise of evil. All that is represented in Revelation 17. And it looks like uh, at that point that Christ and his church will be destroyed. And then all of a sudden we read verse 14. They, all these powers, will wage war against the Lamb, Christ, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful ones. So the only safe place to be, as history draws close, is with the Lamb King, because he is the King over all powers of the universe. And the only people that belong to him are those that are identified as called, chosen, and faithful. And today, you could be part of that because he calls people every day to come to him to leave the world. He chooses every day to give people a salvation and a forgiveness they do not deserve. And to be faithful simply means that you do not place your faith in the world, but you are placing all of your faith in the Lamb King of the universe, Jesus, and he will make you faithful. So that's how the story ends for believers. That's where we ended last week. Great news. But there's another part of the story of how the world ends for those who reject the Lamb King. And that begins in verse 15. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are people's multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They'll bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So when I finished teaching Revelation in last January due to the health things, reasons, uh, many of you said, we can't wait to finish the book. We want to finish the book. And I certainly want to complete uh, all of God's word as well. But I knew this chapter, this part of the chapter was coming up. And I knew, you know, when you're asking, hey, I can't wait to finish. 
that you have to go through the end of Revelation 17 to finish the book. It's a hard chapter. I think maybe the best place to start with it is to understand it's absolutely in verse 18, not talking about the destruction of a of a woman, the mutilation of a woman. She's a metaphor for God's judgment on all those who reject the Lamb King and are part of a rebellious culture and, are, and enjoy being seduced by evil. That's, she's called a city because all the cities have that seductive spirit ruling um, over, over them. It's also important when you look at verse 15 to know it's not just one city that the judgment of God will come. That's why Babylon is not just one city, it's all cities, because this is the judgment that's coming. The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So all ethnicities, all languages, and all, all nationalities, all countries are part of this judgment. Everybody in those places that rejects the Lamb King will be part of this judgment. The most surprising thing about God's judgment in the end is uh, for the woman herself. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute and they will bring her to ruin. If there's one thing that she could have never imagined is that her lovers would turn against her. She put all her hope in the beast and all her hope in all the ungodly relationships among the ten kings and thought that she would be safe with their power and their alleged loyalty. And they turned against her because this is how evil works. It uses people and then destroys them. Evil does not love people. It only loves itself. The prostitute believed the kings of the world loved her just as the people of this world believe that the world loves them and that their philosophy of the world can save them. I hear people saying all the time that uh, the world, you know, what's wrong with the church is the world is more loving than the church. If you want to know how loving the world is, read verse 16. Eventually, the world will always turn on itself and abandon those that it promised loyalty to because the motto of the citizens of the world are pleasure at any cost. This is why for a teenager to be able to rebel, he has to be willing to break his parents' heart. He cannot live like he wants without destroying his parents' joy. This is what evil teaches us to do, to value ourselves more than others. And ultimately, the only way that you can live for yourself is to destroy others because they'll get in your way eventually of what you want. No matter how much evil promises, it always ultimately turns against you because it values itself more than it values you. This Verse 16 is really the picture of a gang. It spent years bringing terror to the city and now members of the gang turn against each other or two criminals who turn state's evidence looking for a plea bargain and they turn against each other though they had been lifetime friends. You think about this from a national perspective. A nation, any nation will fall when 
The individuals of the nation regard themselves as more important than others in the nation or the nation as a whole. When individuals live only for themselves and not for the good of the larger group, self-destruction always occurs. And the only way that anybody will ever be inspired in a nation to live and regard others as more important than me is if you ultimately have God as your chief accountability partner. But if you do not believe that God is the one to whom you're ultimately accountable, you will only live for yourself and not for the good of others. You can look at the Roman Empire. Uh, For four centuries, its leaders taught its people to live for themselves, to live for sensuality and greed, to not care about the nation, but to care about their individual passions And so everybody within the nation started looking at how they could gratify their flesh and did not pay attention to the interest of the nation. And so in 450 AD, when the nation was so weak, nobody saw how weak Rome was and neighboring vandals just walked across the border because nobody had been paying attention to the nation as a whole, only to individual passions. When government turns from God and promotes pleasure and riches that are to be gained apart from the values of God, that government will self-destruct and destroy the very privileges and riches it promised its people. This is why communism never worked. It promised pleasure apart from God and it self-destructed. Evil promises pleasure, but it always delivers chaos, always. That's what's happening in these verses. It's the chaos of people turning against each other. Look how God is involved in this in the end. Those powers will bring her to ruin, for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. So all of the powers of the world, culture and the beast and the 10 kings, uh, all the kingdoms, they believed that they could acquire more power through evil. They could eventually defeat Christ and his mission through the church. And they end up just walking into a God-led plan of self-destruction. He used their evil for their own destruction. This is how Dennis Johnson says it. In gathering to wage war against the Messiah, they are merely assembling for their own execution. We see this played out in the Old Testament in the book of of Judges. A bunch of kings gathered together against Israel. Verse 33, Judges 6, all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. If, if you read the numeric numbers uh, that were uh, in play that day, uh, the Midianites numbered 135,000 soldiers and God had dwindled the fighting men down for Israel at that time to 300. So that's the odds. I mean, it's, that's, that's, it's 135,000 to 300. God said, you don't need uh, all the people you think you need if you trust in me. So he said to these 300 soldiers, uh, all you need is uh, some trumpets uh, and a sword and a jar with a candle in it. 
and uh, I'll do the rest. And this is how it went down in Judges 7. When the 300 trumpets of those soldiers sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. So all 135,000 of the Midianites and the Amalekites, because they were devoted to evil, God caused their plans to self-implode. There's a dangerous arrogance among all evil rulers and leaders that says, just like the Midianites and the Amalekites said and the people here in Revelation 17, I will not be defeated. I cannot be defeated. This is the uh, mantra of cultures, the mantra of people that, whether they lead industries or uh, politics, I just won't be found out. I will win. I'll engage in evil and not lose. This is what this woman believed who represents culture. Revelation 18, 7, in her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen, I will never mourn. I'll never have a bad day. This will last forever. That's what culture believes. And so she thought it would last forever and look how quickly it goes away. Verse eight, therefore in one day, one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning. She said she would never mourn. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. So when we go to Revelation 18 in two weeks, we're, uh, we'll take a break next week. We, are, we, will, we will begin that chapter with what does Babylon look like after it is destroyed. It's just a, a very bleak picture. Described here in verse 1, 18. I saw, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority. And the earth, that's a pretty strong statement. The earth was illuminated by his splendor. That's just amazing. One angel illumines the whole earth. Whew. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, unclean bird, and detestable animal. This is the picture of a, of a massive city, well, really the entire world in ruins. You probably have seen apocalyptic movies or maybe apocalyptic renderings by artists of you know, maybe what the end of the world would look like if there was you know, some big nuclear disaster or whatever. But that's the picture here in Revelation chapter 18. In chapter 17, this woman was described as a woman uh, that was wearing pearls and diamonds and gold, and this is how she looks now. This is how culture looks now. It had everything and lost everything uh, in just a short amount of time. So you might read a passage like this. You come to church and you expect there to be, you know, we sing all these songs of love and hope. You say, well, where, where's... Where's the uh, hope and love in this? Well, here, here's where the hope is, that in the end times, uh, evil, uh, it's not in charge now, and it's not in charge in the days of the Antichrist. Uh, God is orchestrating all the plotting of evil so that it will self-destruct. He's in charge, not evil. That's hopeful. Um, you said, how, how can God be good and, and do that with evil? Listen, God never tells, he doesn't have to tell evil to be evil. It just is. The only thing God does with evil is he restrains it. 
But the Bible says in the last days, as we saw in our previous study, that there will be a day where God will lift the restraints of evil so that it will become more evil. Evil always wants to just do more evil. That's how God uses evil to destroy itself. He lets it get out of control until it turns in on itself. So the hope is that God is in control of the last days and not, not evil. So that's the hope. Where's the love in all of this? Well, two places. God has brought you here today. You are living you have ears, your mind, you have cognitive function. You have heard this. You're alive and you hear this warning. How much more loving could he be? You were less than a prayer away from being saved. All you gotta do is say yes to Christ. So the the love is he's warned you. And the second love is he invites you. Look at this great verse in Revelation 18. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. The purpose of the book of Revelation is right there in 18.4, to invite you to, to not put your trust in the world because the world will be destroyed. Not put your hope in culture. Come out of culture. Come out of the world and receive Christ. You'll be eternally saved. I just wrote somebody last night, their 99-year-old mother <clears throat> went to heaven and I just rejoiced that Jesus Christ has saved her that he can show kindness to her forever. That's the invitation of revelation. Come out, come to Christ. Graphically, it could look like this. The waters that we saw represent all the world. It's where all rebellion on the shores of heaven <laughs> from the cross. Christ says those words again. Come out of her that you will not share in her sins. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ left heaven donned the skin of body of a man, lived perfectly so that he could willingly give his, his body into the hands of evil so that evil controlled people would nail him to a cross so that for the six hours he was there, he could absorb your sin into his body and suffer the wrath of God in his own death so that you would not suffer the wrath of God when you die. Three days after he died, he left the tomb, the grave, rose, returned to heaven where he promises to give his Holy Spirit, his life and his love to anybody's body that would say, I want to leave the world. I want to leave culture's influence. I want to be influenced by you, Jesus. I want to be forgiven by you. This is the message of the church. This is what we do every week, whether we're saying it in Revelation or the book of Ephesians, come out of the world and be saved by Christ. Come out of the world's sin, be saved by the death and resurrection and love of Jesus Christ. Come out of the world, come to Jesus. We say that every week here 
And by God's grace, because of the way you give, we're able to say that to the nations of the world through the missionaries that you send. I would like for you to meet one of the missionaries that you support and have been for 20 years here. Apratha, if you would come to the stage, and I know some guys have some stools for us. And while Apratha is coming, this is our longest standing partnership in, in India. I'll tell you just a little bit about India before I ask Apratha some questions, just so if you guys would go full screen in the tech room, it would be great. I just want to describe a little bit of India to you. It is, uh, let's see, hopefully there's some pictures. Hopefully there's some pictures. We had so many difficulties in the first service. All right, so there's India, a lot of people. One out of every six people in the world uh, lives in India. A lot of people, uh, a lot of, it's very crowded, very noisy. A lot of cars with a lot of people headed to a lot of places. And there's a lot of futures. And unfortunately, there's a lot of idols. And there's a lot of giving of themselves to false gods and a false religion and false hope that will one day be destroyed. And by the grace of God, we have this brother giving his life to preach the gospel of Christ that I just preached. Don't you want that to be preached to the people of India that are trusting in that? Yes. So, before I tell you about his work in, in that very hard part of the world, I want to tell you how we met. You could just leave that full screen back up, guys. Prof and I will take a seat and uh, just leave it on full screen a minute. And so uh, I was teaching uh, in a, another state uh, in 1998, and I wrote uh, a surgeon who works at the Bang Bangalore Baptist Hospital. Her name is Rebecca Naylor. And she had been a hero of mine for years just in reading. And I said, Dr. Naylor, I want to meet you. Could I come to Bangalore to see the hospital and the medical missions work? And so that was my plan, <clears throat> my plan to see her. While I was there, she introduced me to, to this guy right here that's on stage in 1998. And I, I was, she just invited me to a chapel service at the hospital and he was there because he was a chaplain in the hospital. I had no idea who this guy was. Now I'll tell you that morning when I read my Bible, I knew something was up. This was my Bible reading before I went to the hospital that morning. Exodus 23, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. That was weird. I knew, I know where that verse belongs. It uh, promised that God would send an angel to guard Israel to the promise, guide, guide Israel to the promised land. But I knew that day it was for me and I was about to meet somebody. And it took about five years after that, Aprath and I kept emailing each other. But in 2003, when we started this church, the first mission partnership I asked the missions team to, to embrace was Jane India, uh, led by Apratha, Apratha Sarathi. So I want this group uh, to... Uh, oh, and let me just say this. This is a, a beautiful thing here. This, you need to understand. We met in a chapel in India, in Bangalore, in a hospital, and that chapel had been built in 1980 by the people of First Baptist Church Spartanburg. Wow. Yes. And here I am, here I am like I always am, clueless, 
18 years later, I walk into that chapel they built in 1980. And that's where I met this man. And that's why you and I have a partnership in India is because of that sacred holy chapel where, where we met. So, Apratha, you are, at that time, you were a, a chaplain uh, working in a Baptist hospital. How does the work of a chaplain relate to all of the church plants and the evangelism that we are going to hear about? Yeah. First of all, uh, very good morning to Hope Point Church and glory to God. As I was ministering to the sick in the hospital that enabled me to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and then able to follow up visits to their homes and villages and continued sharing Christ. As more and more people received Christ, I helped them to form into churches. And seeing these churches began and emerge in many villages and, and slums, I knew immediately that every one of these churches needed a pastor to lead. And yet that was a problem because all these were new believers. So I want you to just know in these days where he began to leave his day job as a chaplain and begin to travel out to the villages, there were three primary ways that, or places that he went. And I'll just go through these. He, he went to remote villages that sometimes uh, there were no roads, not even electricity, so uh, very dark you know, if he waited too late. And, and he would often ride on a bicycle, didn't have much funding then. And by the way, I want these three bicycles right there uh, were eventually uh, bought by a teenager in this church. He, uh, he got his first job and he donated his first $100 when he was working here to buy those bicycles for those pastors. Um, and there's uh, two studly guys out in the villages. And <laughs> so the, 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 you know, so part of the place were, you know, it was remote villages. Uh, and then um, part of the places he would go were not villages, but actually the slums that were more you know, closer to the city. And so a lot of the work there's uh, from the rooftop of one of our churches, you can see the cross on the right side uh, in, in, in that slum. And, uh, we've been in that slum many, many times to encourage the pastors there and Aprathas there all the time. And, and uh, we're grateful for the, the hope of Jesus uh, in these slums, certainly see interesting things in these, in these places. And we just want the, the hope of the Lord uh, to be given to all these uh, parents and these uh, teenagers and, and these children. And you can see, well, they'll often just put up a stage and begin to sing and then teach Christ uh, to these precious faces, uh, and uh, that's really how the early work of the churches began. And then, when he's not in the slums, he goes out to the more of the uh, it's more of a neighborhood village uh, that, and uh, they have a look that might be a little bit more familiar to you. Still, a lot of roads that aren't great, but uh, just uh, this is where a lot of the other people of the churches. Uh, live out in these uh, neighborhood type villages and we're grateful to get the gospel to them. Okay, so Partha, tell us now about the training. You got to, or really, uh, all of that. Yeah, I began identifying people, those who are interested in evangelism and outreach and then I started a simple program uh, for one year and it, is, it was meant for people sometimes 
who cannot read and write, they come just sit there and listen and learn and have become uh, church planters. And also, after that, many people with good education have come forward and then I started a different type of training them for three years, give them a degree, uh, Bible training uh, degree. Yeah, so that has resulted in um, quite a few churches. This is interesting. When, when I, we first got involved with the Pratha as a church, and I'm so grateful for you, and that's why he's, he's really wanted to come here. Is to, when, when we first got involved with him, he was at 30 churches that he had planted with uh, no, no substantial help, uh, just like you have given. But since then, it's grown just a little bit. So how many churches... So 30 when we started in 2003, how many, how many now? Yes, uh, till now I think I have trained more than uh, 500 church planters and leaders through the training and, and have planted 330 house churches, 330 house churches. I think I should... I should give all the credit, credit to you because you never stopped supporting when you were in a rented building and you never stopped supporting missions when you were building your church and you never stopped supporting missions even during COVID. And I should. And all the churches, 330 churches in India are very grateful to you for your support. And so, you know, just so you can get a feel, and if you guys would go large screen again, I just want to show you a few of just what the churches look like. It'll be great for you to get a feel for what a house church looks like. A lot of times they're very small. They could be in a village, a slum or, or whatever, but they can really squeeze a lot of people into these little places. And, and then sometimes they're a little bit larger. And uh, then that's, a, that's one of the neighborhood village houses. I, I actually was preaching there that Sunday. And just every bedroom, every nook, cranny, kitchen, hallway, it's just, there were probably a hundred people in that house that, that Sunday. And, um, and uh, Lisa and Anna and I have been at, in that church also, started by uh, uh, Pratha's brother, Richard. And uh, that's also Richard's uh, church uh, there that Ronnie preached in, in that church. And so just to get a little feel for the different sizes and, uh, of of, of of the churches. And then this is one of our fun things we like to do is to bring all the leaders together and to just really have a great rah-rah session of encouragement uh, to them. And we do that uh, from, from time to time. So Apratha, <clears throat> um, I want to, you guys can leave this big screen again because I want to, <clears throat> I want to, uh, this is one of my favorite pictures. I'm staying with Apratha's dad. Uh, and I, <clears throat> I love it. I feel like an NBA player. Um, when I'm with him, <clears throat> I just, and uh, he was a pastor, so Apratha comes from, from that line, and I, I want you to, Apratha, to just, this is one of the godly influences of courage and sacrificial leadership that was in his life, and uh, that's the home where Apratha grew up, and that's where his, his father and his mother lived, there in a, a, a place called KGF, Color Goldfields, Color Goldfields, but uh, I want Apratha, if you would, <clears throat> after our people sort of get a, that's Apratha's dad on the left and then a water tower on the right. Just, you, you guys can, uh, in the back, can uh, quit the widescreen and just, I want Apratha to tell the story of why that's so important in his father's uh, starting of a church. Yeah, my dad was a shortened teacher and so 
he wanted to preach the gospel and reach many people and so he climbed on the rooftop and started preaching to women who come to fetch the water and also to people those who walk by to the mines area to work and he also himself worked in the gold mines of kola gold fields yes yeah, so you just need to understand that this guy would stand on top of the water tower, preach to women as they were coming for their morning water with their bottles, and then as people would, men would be going into the mines, because that's Kohler, the mine for gold, he would preach to them, and then he himself would go to work. He had to be at work at, you know, six or seven o'clock in the morning, so all this preaching early in the morning, and that eventually resulted in the birth of that little church, uh, and then, um, you know, 35 or 40 years later, they, they built a larger church, and his dad is with the Lord now, and Apratha's brother is, uh, is pastoring uh, that, that, church, that church now. Yeah, so th- that was uh, influence from your father. If you could just quickly uh, tell us, I'm gonna go really quickly, just, there's your, your wife. Tell us about retina, just quickly, and I'll just. Yes. Um, my, my parents were blessed with five children and four boys, and four of us are pastors in the ministry. <laughs> And, and we have one sister whose husband also is a pastor. <laughs> so all of us are serving the Lord. And I have a brother who works with rice bowls, uh, again from Spartanburg, which, which feeds uh, 1150 children in India in 31 homes. And so he works as a national coordinator of that. And my uh, brother, Richard, he just passed away with uh, brain cancer on May 10th. And that is a great loss for the family and also for the church planting. And Pastor Richard Smith and Caleb, they were there to pray with us during this time of crisis. And we are very grateful to you, Pastor. And coming to my wife is a medical doctor and we are married for 31 years. And now we have become grandparents. <laughs> and she, is, she has been traveling for two hours one way for the past 20 years to take care of the family. And we have been praying so that she can come closer to our home. Pastor Richard and many friends, Hornbuckles, they are praying with us. And God has answered your prayers. And she has now moved very closer to the home. And thank God for that blessings. And we are blessed with two sons. And Daivashish is a medical doctor. And he wouldn't have become a medical doctor without Hope Point again. Because a businessman from this church provided for his medical education. Yes, we are very grateful to you. And now uh, he is into his residency doing his ENT surgery. And he is married to Dr. Shweta and they are blessed with a baby boy, uh, Dino, we call him. And our youngest son, Daiwan Vesh, we call him Chintu and he is uh, received God's call to leave his feel aeronautical engineering and to become a pastor and 
work with house churches and train pastors so i would request you all to keep him in your prayers so we're sort of shocked that chintu his youngest is he studied aeronautical engineering has a great job with lufthansa is leaving that because he wants to carry on his dad's tradition of planting churches in all the places that you have seen in the pictures today so a real um, you know as jesus said uh, leave your nets leave your nets and come follow me shintu is really is really living that out apartha we're going to i don't want you to uh, spend a lot of time on this but i just want to at least for you could to know uh, the indian church is filled with a lot of women and just uh, so tell uh, quickly how do you use them in the ministry if you could do that quickly uh, we have uh, 15 bible women who are serving alongside with 30 church planters with jain india mission and who who meet women in the neighborhood who pray with them and counsel them they share in their sorrows and joy and share the gospel we have a widow in one of our house churches who shares the gospel to at least 10 people there a day there she there's a prophet there she is right there in the white scarf yes. right yes right white scarf okay and she shares gospel at least to 10 people every day and then she brings people to church and women are really a great a channel of blessing uh, to many women who are in distress yeah the, the indian church is growing so much by the the role of these women in their uh, in their service to the poor to the oppressed and uh, just uh, very grateful for them um i prata i think i'll move to this last picture The last time I was in India with uh, David Sullivan uh, and uh, Ronnie Marmel, we dedicated one of the newer churches, which was new then, and you know there have been so many since then. But we were at that church and uh, loved being with those people. Uh, and and interesting, that church is already planting a new church, but it came about with an unusual way. And I want to uh, prophet to tell you the story of why that church so quickly planted another church. through the help of this man named Ravi. Yeah, this is Ravi. Uh he is a landlord. He has lot of land. And he was a Hindu and he used to help temples and feed villagers during the Hindu festivals. And one day while they were having their family function, uh, his brother just went to bring some water and while crossing the road he met an accident and dies on the spot. and so this family was afraid of witchcraft that is brother died and then they had lot of fear and this ravi never stepped off out of the house for nearly one year out of fear and then when our church planter pastor akola visited that village he was invited to come and pray for this man ravi and then when he prayed he experienced the power and love of jesus christ and then he started coming out of the house and came to church sunday after sunday and after 6 months he was baptized and then he was led by the lord to give a piece of land to build a church in his village and so while we were building a church in that village the village heads called him uh to the village court 
and asked them, why are you building the church? You were all these days helping the temples and feeding the villagers and why temple now? And so then uh, the whole village crowd was there and in front of them he stood and he said that I was sinking in the sea and dying. And then there came a boat. I got into the boat. I am safe now. And he said, you all can get into that boat. Get into that boat. And if you don't get into that boat, you are going to die. I am safe. And the whole crowd was silenced. But from where did he get this wisdom? He is an illiterate. The Bible says wisdom comes from the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 2 verses 6. Praise to <laughs> Jesus Christ. Hey, praise to Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Uh, an, an illiterate man couldn't read a Bible story after six months of being saved, knew just to stand in front of the villagers that were accusing him and say, get into the boat. The very message of Revelation 17, come out of her, come out of the world and get into the boat with Christ. And this man again came to Jesus because he had been delivered from demonic oppression and a prophet told Lisa and me last night at supper, the majority of people in the churches, of the 330 churches, have been delivered from demonic oppression. It's, uh, uh, it's people are, you give your life to worshiping demonic idols and you bring in a power you can't imagine. And so it's, this man was freed and was so grateful. He's begging people, get into the boat. Come to Christ. And this is the message we Love partnering with you, Apratha, with to be able to say to the people of India, to the people of Spartanburg, come out of the world, come to Christ, and get in the boat. Apratha and I have had many memories. I'll just show you. We can go full screen again. I'll, we'll end with this. If you go full screen uh, back at the tech room, the, uh, this just we, nothing excites us more than the baptism services that we've been a part of through the past 25 years. And uh, we just love to see these people coming out of idol worship or uh, nominal Christianity or, uh, and uh, professing faith in Christ publicly in the village. And then, of course, right after we baptize them, we hold a communion, their first time to be able to uh, honor the blood and the body of Jesus Christ with communion. And they are so, it's such a privilege for them. And I'll just end with this precious woman and let her eyes help you see uh, all the people in India that we still want to reach. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.